0: Optimistically, I think this gives London a breather and a chance to to reinvent itself. This
1: is Future Cities, the series that brings together some of the people exploring and shaping what our cities could be like in the future. I'm Professor Alan Thompson, UCL's Pro Vice Provost for London, and in this first series, we're looking at the future of London within the context of UCL. London's leading multidisciplinary university, right in the heart of the city, with the British Museum, the Green Squares of Bloomsbury, and the bustle of Tottenham Court Road right on our doorstep. Episode one is about the challenges that London faces as it comes out of the pandemic and into a post-Brexit world. And joining me today is Dr John Reeds from the Bartlett, UCL's Faculty of the Built Environment. Let's strip back the academic view and talk about what is probably on most people's minds right now. What is the world going to look like post-pandemic? And I'd like to introduce Dr. John Reeds, who is Associate Professor in Spatial Data Science within UCL's Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis called CASA in the Bartlett. John actually grew up outside Toronto, Canada, in Miss Aga, and then studied and lived in New York before joining UCL to study for an MPhil PhD. He continued to stay on as postdoc and then moved to King's, where he worked for eight years before returning to UCL in September 2020. John's experience in Canada, New York and London have him well-placed to talk about the future of cities. John, you recently wrote a book, Why Face-to-Face Still Matters, The Persistent Power of Cities in the Post-Pandemic Era.
0: Tell me a little bit about the book. I think in a way, our core argument could be distilled down to one simple thing, which is that it's always tempting, especially kind of in an age of rapid technological change to think, you know, this time it's different. But the book kind of argues that the best guide to the future is usually the past. And although we didn't engage directly with the ways that pandemics have reshaped cities, um, this is certainly not the first pandemic that cities like London uh Paris, New York, or even Toronto have faced, and nor is it likely to be the last. And I would say that after each one, cities have recovered and reinvented themselves. And I think in a sense, that's what cities do. And a big part of that is because cities are full of creative people who are always reinventing themselves, You know, whether it's as scientists or chefs, bankers or taxi drivers, and that cities Excel at bringing those people together and enabling them to, you know, create new products, new services, um, and that's because they provide the infrastructure for doing this. Whether it's you know the big infrastructures that we think of like airports, rail stations, subways, buses, or all of that informal infrastructure that supports sociability, restaurants, bars, universities, theaters, and so on, and so what we do in the book is we start by looking at the kind of the transport infrastructure that moves stuff, boxes, bits, people around and then we kind of build up from there so sort of developing an argument from first principles and then showing how that plays out in you know what we recognize as a great world city like London.
1: Right, so it's really all about all about the people. I guess certainly for the university during the pandemic and still now. We saw most workplaces adopting to to remote working. People moved out of the city either to the countryside or to smaller, more affordable towns and cities. Can you really see a world where people will be choosing to commute back into the city daily, packed into transport for London? I know there's considerable anxiety even as we speak about that as a concept. So what is it that will, will draw them back and and draw them back safely
0: i think that what has happened i mean the trend towards remote working was kind of baked in long before the pandemic it was changing but it was changing very slowly um one of the metaphors that we use uh, in the book is that you know covid was the petrol but it wasn't the the fire Mm. and i think if you look at an industry if you will like academia a lot of us have had already been working from home two or three days a week at least the the academic staff if not the professional services and what's happened is is that the pandemic has led institutions including universities to realize that a lot more staff probably didn't need to be there five days a week and can and should be offered more flexibility however there's there, there there's two things so i, I think we did adapt very well to keeping the show on the road, but one of the things that comes out very strongly in our interviews, and you know, also in our personal experience, is that what didn't happen was, you know, the the hard stuff: developing new contacts, building new businesses. Um, these things carried on, but they're much harder when you can't meet up with. You know, venture capitalists and hedge funds or research collaborators, especially new research collaborators with whom you don't already have an existing relationship. Mm. So I think as to what's going to bring people back, it, it's that need to meet face to face when what needs to be dealt with is something hard and complex. Routine work, you know, the the Monday morning check-in, the bi-weekly meeting, uh lab meeting, things like that these are much more amenable to being shall we say hybridized so some people might want to be there in person some people are happy to do it online yep. but then of course that's going to bring in new questions around if half your office is, is working remotely how do they participate in you know what we historically call things like the water cooler chit chat you know where you would find out about oh you're working on that actually have do you know that so-and-so is also doing this um as I love this quote from one of our interviewees, that it's it's hard to novel someone in the corridor when there's no corridor. And I think that that really speaks to the sorts of issues that will bring us back. As to doing it safely, I think one of the potential long-run benefits of this remote working experience is realizing that the nine to five, the need for people to be there in set hours, especially within knowledge work, becomes less compelling so some people might want to travel in at you know 6 30 a.m and travel home at 4 30 and in the afternoon other people might want to shift their hours a bit later so what that hopefully will lead towards is a kind of a a more extended but less intense rush hour as people you know self-select according to their their tolerance for uh being in the same carriage as hundreds of other people
1: so flexibility is key and this concept of people uh, taking responsibility for themselves so they they make more sensible decisions perhaps Uh, but but also then this balance about appreciating that you need to engage face to face but not all the time i mean do you think our our workforce are capable of distilling out the fact that face to face working is really important but not for everything and and therefore having the incentive to come into the city uh, rather than stay in the comfort of their own home where they're in control of things and can do their own thing
0: it's a good question i think that many of us you know without necessarily saying that we miss being in the office every day miss that that the buzz that comes from being around colleagues being You know, stimulated intellectually by what they do, Mm -hmm. um, what they're working on, what we can work with them on. And again, I'm speaking in particular to what we would call the knowledge intensive industries, you know, higher education and research, consultancy, banking, the arts, arts and culture, kind of the areas where, in a sense, we hire people to have agency, right? We don't hire, you know, high profile professors and then tell them what to do. And it's the same thing with Actors and you know directors were hiring them for their for their skills. Um, I think one thing that has been thrown up very strongly by this is that you know the distinction between those workers who were able to adapt quite quickly to being online because of the nature of their work versus the challenges that we faced with um, supporting you know key workers, critical workers, people like delivery drivers, supermarket staff. Um, that's a bit of a tangent. But I, I think that to kind of try and bring that back to your question, you know, work is 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 for many people more than just a space where you go and do something for a set number of hours. And that means that most people will want to engage with that strongly. There's there's the psychological motivation.
1: I agree agree, but I I, I sometimes worry that people May may not fully appreciate this, and, and and it's the same with employers. I mean, you know, UCL is is a huge uh, employer, but will it trust its staff sufficiently to allow them the flexibility that they need? So will will the employers move into this brave new world with, with a greater degree of trust and flexibility?
0: All of the evidence that we have, and obviously the, that evidence is is developing every day, but certainly, you know, what I've been reading in the news and. What we pick up from, for instance, our our interviews, some of which we we kind of re-interview some of our interviewees uh, in the midst of the pandemic, is that people are are motivated. They they want you know people want to do their work to a high standard, and therefore, I think, in a sense, my my hope is is that employers would trust their, their, their employees. And in in a sense, I think it's necessary because the best way to attract and retain the most valuable workers is to give them agency is to give them scope to effect change, to have control over their environment. Now people will have different risk tolerances. Um, People will feel, you know, certainly right now, people are going to feel very ambivalent about going back into the office. And I think that's entirely logical and sensible. And so I think the role that employers play in this context is one of trying to understand the different spectrum of responses and to and to support those as best they can now you know there're going to be challenges in you know in big cities space certainly was at a premium i think one of the really interesting dynamics that is still being worked out is of course the pandemic has shifted a lot of our shopping behavior online and that's had catastrophic consequences for some of the big chain shops, you know, your Debenhams and things like that. So we we now have a lot of very large format uh, spaces um, going vacant in in big cities. And there 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 was a, a, an exciting idea that certainly at least one university has taken over an old Debenhams and is in the process of converting it to uh, a, a teaching space. And so I actually think a bit of easing of the pressure on a city like London in terms of you know, ever higher commercial rates driving, you know, certain kinds of businesses, you know, with high turnover um, towards more flexible uses, more creative uses, um, dare I say it, pop up uses could actually be a very good thing for London because it had become incredibly unaffordable for the majority of Londoners to actually, you know, to, to you cut know, people in, if you will, regular jobs. Uh, to, to aspire to ever leo you know, live within zone six kind of thing
1: absolutely, and I suppose one of the things everybody keeps saying is that life will never be quite the same, but actually that 's not necessarily a bad thing mm. because we've we 've learned a lot uh, during this time and, and and the tragedy would be to to lose that learning, so in terms of you know, use of space and 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 shared space, and and perhaps again thinking about UCL working partnership with with a community with with Camden, and I know, for example, that we are looking at, at different use of of joint spaces, both to integrate more, but actually to to have more effective use of space, and and I guess that's something which we we may see more of over over the next twelve twenty four months.
0: The shaking up of assumptions is certainly going to drive creativity there. I'm in mind a little bit of the glee we all took at the sort of collapse of of WeWork's, you know, IPO, initial public offering shortly before the pandemic. But of course, it kind of seems like what we're headed to now, and I think this is going to be one of the really interesting things, is I do think people will prefer to have local options, you know, for work. And those will be less formal spaces, my own personal pattern of work would be if I didn't need to go into UCL, I would, you know, head off to a coffee shop and and sit there for a couple of hours and just enjoy the buzz of people around me. But I would do all that on foot because, you know, why get on the tube, do everything else when I could just walk somewhere that was local, maybe run into a friend. And so there's, I think, a potential for local high streets within what planners would call conurbations to benefit. So you know, my co-author on this book often joked that today Bread in Walthamstow Central must be the center of the, you know, the creative world in London because he had, I think, three of the interviews that we did with people in the cultural sector. They all independently suggested that location. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's not going to feature on a, you know, we normally think of the cultural industries as being about Soho and the West End, but that, of course, is not where these people live. It's where you go if you have a big editing suite. You need to bring people together to look at an edit of a film or, or something like that. But the people who work in those industries live out here. They're happy to meet out here. That's kind of part of their routine, if you will. So in terms of kind of that flexibility you were talking about, it's looking at ways to offer more more sites, smaller locations, more flexible locations seems like a, a positive
1: In the context of UCL, we've talked about UCL as an employer and we've talked about its staff. We haven't said much about the students and and the new graduates. And of course, they've really missed out on many opportunities. One of the exciting opportunities in London is, of course, working with the boroughs to create placements. And and that's been something uh, students have really enjoyed and and also as volunteers. And I, I wonder, is that something which we can use to help not so much attract uh, students back, but to actually enrich students when they do come back? And and how might that have changed as a result of what's gone on?
0: My my suspicion would be that UCL and, and the other universities won't have to work particularly hard to attract students back. I think they are probably desperate to come back. You know, If they've been here for a year or two, they're probably desperate to see friends. If they're still living at home, they are you know, however much they love their parents desperate to leave. And I think that there's outside of the classroom, one of the really valuable things that universities do is provide, in a sense, that initial seed of social capital, um, both the friends that you make through university, which is much harder to do in a deep way online. So, you know, it's much harder to form those kind of relationships that will stay with you for the rest of your life, you know, during that time of transition. But then also the exposure to employers, to ways of working, to kind of the the, the norms of, of the business world. And so I think that supporting them in developing employability skills, um, both in sort of more formal means and, and informal, you know, Seminars and other things, which are, you know, I think, challenging for students to engage with remotely. Because if we all, you know, repaired to, you know, a a pub or some, you know, a restaurant, then that conversation would become much more multi way, and students would be in a position to sort of observe how we interact, what we talk about, what people are excited by. One of the things that we don't really appreciate is the richness of face to face contact as a kind of if you will, an information channel, right? So it's not just about what I'm saying, uh, as you know, as we're experiencing now, but also about, you know, do I look excited about something? Am I, you know, staring you know, uh, staring off into the distance? You know, um, how is the person I'm speaking with responding to what I'm saying? All those really subtle cues um, from which we extract a great deal of information, you know, who showed up, who didn't show up, who led the conversation, who was silent. Those 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 really valuable cues are just missing, and and they're sort of impoverished when we do Zoom calls. I guess I would say.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, the point I I, I often say you can judge the value of a meeting by the length of time people stay behind after the meeting to mm. discuss, and actually sometimes the, the the discussion after the meeting is even more valuable than the meeting itself. And of course that that just doesn't really happen. You can try and make it happen, but it's really quite artificial. And it it usually, as you say, it peters out. We've talked about the pandemic quite a lot. We haven't really talked so much about that B word, Brexit, and, (laughs) and, and then this combined effect. How do you think London is going to be able to respond to that because in a way you could argue the pandemic has slightly overshadowed Brexit and we haven't really felt the impact or at least we haven't been aware we've felt it.
0: I suspect that over the next 12 months we will still be wondering if things are the result of Brexit or the pandemic sort of hangover, if you will. I think the kind of the effects of Brexit will probably play out over the much longer term. On on one side, you know, for the past 40 years, the default choice of many businesses that wanted to operate internationally and wanted to have a base in Europe was probably to set up some kind of major center in in London and i think that what brexit does is it changes that default so you know we have stories about sort of the financial services in amsterdam starting to pick up you know paris trying to attract people and 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 so on so i don't think that means you know all of those companies that have bases here are suddenly going to pack up and move 5000 staff across the channel but it means that when they're making decisions about where to invest and where to expand those decisions will inevitably go to Europe because it's easier to be on the inside than the outside that said what london excels in is is services which are in one sense ideas are highly portable so multinational consultancies you know they may not move their staff from london to europe but they may still find ways to kind of develop the idea in london and then if you will ship it across the channel in a, if if i were being optimistic i think i would actually focus on the ways in which this might reduce the pressures on london for instance, the treasury has historically recognized as particularly valuable. So if what we see is reduced demand for gigantic offices for expanding headquarters and things like that, that might actually help to make London a more livable place. When you turn to, for instance, what's been built in terms of residential housing, I've been involved in research and there's also a really nice piece of research done by the Bartlett School of Planning, looking at kind of shrinking homes in London and the kind of the scale of that effect. And that is a result of international investment, well, in part coming into London and people saying, well, we can build and sell 100 studio flats uh, of relatively poor quality, rather than kind of investing in homes where people want to live. But that's because the demand in London is so great. If we actually ease up on that, it gives London a chance to take a breath and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, post-pandemic, is this the way we want people to be living? You know, is this the kind of London that people should call home?
1: You you don't worry that that would result in a reduced value of property prices and, uh, and have a sort of a, a negative effect along those lines.
0: You know, I, I can say as somebody who is, is in the fortunate position of owning their home that obviously I, on one level, I hope property prices don't fall. But I think we also have to look at the Kind of wider societal implications of these prices, you know, where I bought eight years ago, I couldn't afford to buy now, which is bonkers. Yeah. I mean, it's a that's not a sustainable city. Um, so, if we're talking about kind of sustainable urban futures, then we need to be thinking about how we, in a sense, moderate the, those effects. And I think there are a number of ways that could be done. But one of those is to probably spend a little less time and energy producing commercial. Office space, and and that would be a result of kind of suppressed demand post Brexit, and a little more time producing kind of local spaces, places where people want to work, and livable homes. You know, which either, even if they don't necessarily provide their own green space, at least separate, you know, your office from your living room, from your uh, bedroom. um, You know, which is what many people were experiencing a year and a half ago.
1: If I was to summarize in, in very simple terms, you you have a very positive outlook as we move forward because it's people based uh, and because we, we're going to be more flexible and because we'll have learned from this pandemic in a way which will change behaviour for the better. Is that unreasonable?
0: Yeah, I I think that the pandemic has shaken up our you know business as normal and that we need to recognise that that is. You know that was probably necessary. I don't want to say it's uniquely a good thing. Just to give an example of how these things can play out in the long run, if people are only commuting uh, two or three days a week, they might well decide I can live a lot further from my place of work. And um, if we are also still worried about traveling on public transit because the buses are unreliable and full of people who may be ill, then. What we could actually see is, for instance, you know, carbon emissions going up as people travel further in a private vehicles. I think the potential is there to, to really change you know, the dynamic here in the UK and, and possibly even globally for, for the better. I do think it still requires concerted planning and, and action in order to kind of bring those potential benefits you know, to fruition, if you will.
1: And that, and that planning and that action is something which we as a university should be taking a very active role in. And I think partnering with our local boroughs and with the GLA to, to actually make sure we, we, we get to the right place. I guess with all eyes on London for the mayoral elections, every Londoner has a role in shaping our city. So it's really important that we all go out and vote. You've been listening to Future Cities, brought to you by UCL. This podcast is an Ant Nell production, and the producer and editor of this episode was Shivani Dave.